Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. It's me, Barry Katz. Again, thank you so much for all the feedback. It's really humbling to the people that have stopped me. When you do these podcasts, all you have is the numbers, and the numbers have been beyond my wildest dreams. But you don't know, like if there's millions of people that listen, you don't know who those people are. You have no idea. I'm sad to say that it sounds horrible, but you, the audience, are faceless, but you're a powerful, powerful group. And so the only time that you are not faceless or at least have some kind of knowledge of who you are is when you write to me or you send me an email or a tweet or feedback on the iTunes comment page or when I walk through a place like the Montreal Just for Last Festival and literally every single hour there's a different person who comes up to me who I don't know and shakes my hand and says thank you. It's hard to believe, but for me anyway, a woman came up to me, a wonderful woman, and I'm not going to mention her name because I don't know if she'd want me to, and she said, are you Barry? I said, yes. She said, I just want to thank you so much for the podcast. I've listened to all of them, some of them twice, and I decided to quit my job and go into producing comedy and in management, and in one short year, I'm producing a show here at the festival. And then there was another person that came up to me last night who has a very, very prestigious job now on a huge, huge show. 
And he came up to me and he said, listen, before I did my test, I said to myself, I have to be undeniable. And I got that from what you told me. And it worked. And I got the gig. This is why I do this. But I thank you so much. But enough about this because I'm very excited today because I'm sitting across from somebody who is a big 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 part of my life it's keith robinson and as you know i always look at my guests when they come here and i think about something i'm going to say and i never know what i'm going to say i love keith robinson i have always loved keith robinson and i want to share something with you i love keith robinson just as much as an artist as i do a performer He's always been a guy who, from the moment I met him, just unwavering happiness. I remember when I was a young boy watching baseball on a television that I had to turn the channels with a plier. <laughs> and <laughs> there was a baseball player who played for the Pittsburgh Pirates. He was a catcher. And he was always a guy who had a smile on his face. His name was Manny Sanguian. Never forget that. Always had a smile on his face. Always happy. And Just I, like Manny Sanguian, no one knows me either. <laughs> <laughs> Can you pick some more obscure people? So every time I met Keith, always happy now you gotta understand something i don't know what it's like in every profession i don't know what it's like at the firm or at the accounting office or at the shipping department of a major bookstore all i know is the comedy business and this world that revolves around comedy that goes into everything from writing to performing to directing to so many different offshoots but this is the world i started in and in this world there is a lot of darkness, an enormous amount of darkness. There are people who walk into a place, and as I like to say, the hair on the back of your neck stands up. They have this dark cloud that follows them, like the Peanuts cartoon with the blanket and the cloud of dust around them. And no matter where they go, they stain you. It doesn't matter. You have one conversation with the person, and you're just stained and you can't get it off of you. You remember the conversation. You remember the thing they said. But you can't help being around them because everywhere you go, there's only a few separate places in the comedy scene you can go and they're always there. No matter where you go, they're there. <laughs> and <laughs> they're the darkness. And Keith Robinson was always the light, which has always amazed me because I think... He's had a very, very hard life, and a lot of things have gone wrong in his life, personally, and probably, he might say, professionally. And so that's one of the things that always struck me. And I remember this story vividly, because I used to manage Keith a while back. And I was a young manager, and I was trying to make it. I had a comedy club. I made money there. But, you know, nothing that I was going to, like, buy an island. You know, maybe, you know, maybe if I made $50,000 or $100,000 maybe at the comedy club over a year, 
It was a miracle. And then I just had the management business. And when you're living in New York, you can't get by. And I managed Keith and I submitted him to a show called Star Search with Ed McMahon. <laughs> My favorite moment on Star Search, <laughs> other than Keith Robinson, was with Dave Chappelle. And you're probably saying, why would you ever put Dave Chappelle on Star Search? And this story will probably allude to why. So Dave's on Star Search. He wins the first one. And he's about to do the second one. And he says to me, hey, Barry, I got this joke I want to tell as a first joke. What do you think of this? And he whispers in my ear. And I'm like, wow, that's a great joke. Uh, let me just clear it with Gary Mann first and then see what he thinks about it. Because Gary Mann now at Comedy Central was at Star Search. And Gary says, oh, that's funny. Let me just clear it with the producer, Sam Riddle. And Sam Riddle was this, like, blonde guy who was older. He had his hair bleached blonde. He's probably, like, 70, but he looked like 50. And Ed McMahon starts to cue the director of the stage. Everybody applaud. Everybody's applauding. Ed McMahon's like, all right, this next young man is coming back for a second time on Star Search. He's originally from Washington, D.C. Please welcome. Stop the tape! Stop the tape! <laughs> Sam Riddle's running down the aisle. Stop! Stop the tape! Cut! Cut! He runs down. He says, Dave, you can't do that joke. I'll let you repeat any joke you want. You just can't do it. I'm sorry. You can't do that joke. We're in Orlando, Dave, here and on the, on the, on the location of Disney where we can't, we can't have you do that. And Dave just smiled like Keith Robinson said, no problem, man. We'll figure it out. And, okay, I'll give you a few minutes. And Dave's like, I got it. Don't worry, Barry. All of you are probably wondering what the joke was. And the joke was this. Good to be here in Disney World. <laughs> Not a lot of black people here in Disney World. I saw only two black people today. And one of them was Mickey. <laughs> That was the joke they wouldn't let him do. But Dave won and went on, and as he was introduced by Ed McMahon, I realized the reason why Dave wanted to do Star Search. Ed says, I understand your grandmother is a big fan of the show. She loves the show. And Dave says, yes, Ed. She's always wanted me to do the show. This is the number one goal, and I had to do the show for her. I mean, Ed, I don't know how to tell you this, but she owns a closet full of Alpo. She didn't even have a dog. Because <laughs> Ed used to hawk Alpo dog products. And so it was exciting to me the fact that Keith Robinson, who I managed, was doing Star Search. And I thought, God, this guy's got the kind of act to be able to win. Believe it or not, I never thought Dave Chappelle could win the show because it's a two minute and 20 second set. By the time Dave Chappelle says one sentence, it's two minutes and 20 seconds. He's a storyteller. But Keith had these things that these kind of jokes, he could tell stories, but he could tell these jokes that were tremendously powerful and a lot of them per minute. And Keith burned through this process and kept winning and winning and winning. And I'm thinking, oh, this is exciting. And then he wins his final set and he's in the finals for a hundred thousand dollars and i was very involved with keith and the sets and how they were going except for this last set this last set 
Keith had an idea of what he thought should go in the set. So Keith runs his set by me. And it's fantastic, but there's a joke right up front that, you know, this is an all-white crowd, this is a conservative crowd, and Keith has a joke up front that's sort of like, it's phenomenal for New York City. A bone-crushing <laughs> joke. But for Disney World, not good. But I thought and, Al Sharpton was one of the judges, if I recollect. Yes, he was. And so I'm, only, I'm playing only, Al. Only one of the judges. <laughs> and there's I don't three, think he voted for me. Three judges. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, the one time in his life he went against the brother. <laughs> so what happens is Al Sharpton is a judge. And Keith says, Al Sharpton's one of the judges. This is what I got to do. I got to appeal to the I'm like, there's three judges. You got to just go with what you can. You can win this 100000 It's like, no, I think I'm going to stick with this joke. And so Keith was up against a guy named Don McMillan. And if you're familiar with Don McMillan, large, large white man, kind of looked like a member of the Aryan race, <laughs> only bigger and stronger. <laughs> he was the guy in those old Budweiser commercials with a bullhorn. So Keith goes on, and he does the joke. And the joke is, and I'm paraphrasing because I'm not good at remembering every word. I flew down here to Orlando, uh, you know, on the plane. A lot of white people on the plane. Um, I'm walking down the aisle of the plane, and a white woman grabs her pocketbook and clutches it towards <laughs> her body like this. I'm thinking to myself, what does this woman think? I'm going to take her pocketbook. I'm going to run to the end of the plane. Open up the hatch like D.B. Sweeney and parachute out with her pocketbook. Yeah, that was a good one. That should have got me a hundred macaronis. Crickets. <laughs> <laughs> and I was in that green room watching that, watching my $15,000 <laughs> slip away. So this is what happened right before he's going on. Don McMillan thought he was going to lose. So he goes to Keith and he says, listen, man, why don't we do this? We just write something on a napkin. Whatever happens, we both get $50,000. I'm there with him. I'm like thinking, God, this is exciting. What a nice thing. God, $7,500. He's still at it. He's money. I'm looking at the bills. For those of you who don't know me, I've never really been about the money. If something happens, it happens. And you push towards something and you believe in something and the money comes. But I think back then I was just under so much pressure to pay the bill. I had this office at 57th and Broadway and I didn't know what to do and how to pay them. I thought, this is it. And Don comes in and offers him 50000 I'm saying, oh, this is so great. This is office. And Keith's like, no, thank you. I'm going to win this 100000 I'm going to get that 100000 I already talked to my family, told them what to get. Put something on layaway. And so Don leaves, and I literally go into the bathroom, and I sit on the toilet, and I put my head in my hands, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be a long night. <laughs> <laughs> and so <laughs> Keith does the set. They announce the winner, Don McMillan. And Keith came back to the dressing room, and I'll never forget, the look on his face was just as happy <laughs> as if, he had won $100,000. And even though it stung and it hurt and it was money that he lost, that he could have won, it didn't seem to affect him. That's something that always impressed me about Keith Robinson. And when you 
are in a profession where there's a lot of different kinds of people, a lot of different kinds of talents. You want to be the person around people that's happy. You want to be the person around people that makes them want you to be around them. And then you create relationships that are lifelong relationships. So when you look at Keith Robinson's career, there's a reason for certain things. On Tough Crowd on Comedy Central with Colin Quinn, why do you think Keith Robinson was on the show probably more episodes than anybody else? It was an ensemble show. He was there because Colin Quinn, who happens to be a guy who could be argued has more darkness than light, loved Keith Robinson to be around. Not just loved his talent, but loved him to be around. When Wanda Sykes got her talk show on Fox, who did she call? She called Keith Robinson because she loved having Keith around because he always was happy in times of tough times and good times. And an artist like Wanda, where there's so much pressure on somebody's career, loved the fact that there was always going to be somebody there who was going to feel happy and make her feel happy. When Kevin Hart was doing his movie or wanted to produce a comedy special, and spend his money, not anybody else's money, his money, reach into his pocket and take his money. Who got the call? He didn't produce a special with anybody else. He produced a special with one person, Keith Robinson, because Keith Robinson makes him feel good, makes him feel happy, because no matter how happy Kevin Hart looks, anybody who tells you that money makes you happy never had any to begin with. And so that's why Keith Robinson and all these people have this kind of bond, and they'll have relationships until the end of time. So my lesson today, if there is a lesson, is the fact that if you can just stay positive, no matter what happens, and every time you go out and every time you're around your coworkers or the people around you, you can be the best representation of yourself. They'll always want to be around you. They'll always want to have you in their life. And as they rise, you will rise. And as you rise, you'll all rise together, and you'll all rally around each other, and you'll all be successful. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, 
Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, it will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary, I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, with my man, Keith Robinson, and I am very excited about this, and I'm going to give him the proper introduction, That's and right. then you guys are going to have a great time, because this guy's one of the funniest, just incredible guys you'll ever meet. All right. Keith Robinson is a comedian's comedian. Let me tell you what that means. That means when he goes on stage, other comedians want to run into the room and see him. They all love his act, and they all love him as a person. He's admired by his fellow artists, his great art of inherently subverting his audience, shaking them out of their cozy assumptions to fresh perspectives sustains his comic dominance and prominence. His commanding stage presence has gained him appearances on MTV, VH1, HBO's Deaf Comedy Jam, TBS's Family Comedy Series, Are We There Yet?, The Chelsea Lately Show on E! and Late Night with Conan O'Brien. 
In his teens, Keith began cultivating his wit with his back-to-the-bus funny, subsequently working the comedy circuit in his hometown of Philadelphia and securing a spot, as I said, on one of the finalists on Ed McMahon's Star Search. He might not have taken home the prize that day, but his career as a comedic actor mushroomed. He now merits a coveted comedic and acting career on the stage, screen, and television. And his impressive record of accomplishments include his self-titled special on Comedy Central, a standout regular on Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn, a writer and central performer on The Wanda Sykes Show, and writer for The Chappelle Show. He was recently seen in Kevin Hart's record-breaking movie Laugh at My Pain, one of New York comedy sellers' elite, where he frequently hosts Keith's reputation, as best described by cringe humor, for being the best at impromptu zingers and one-liners that annihilate his colleagues. His numerous live performances span the globe with stand-up frequencies at the Improv and Laugh Factory in Los Angeles, comic strip in New York, and all over the world. His new special, produced by Kevin Hart and executive produced by himself, Back of the Bus Funny, look for that. And you can see him in the movie with Amy Schumer, produced and directed by Judd Apatow, called Trainwreck. When Amy Schumer wanted to find the comedian to come into her movie and play a role that was going to help the movie add some funny to it and on the set be somebody who she could look at and say, wow, it's great to have that person around. She chose Keith Robinson. Please welcome my guest today, the man, the myth, I'm excited, Keith Robinson. Hey, man. You know, all those, uh, like, at least 95% of those uh, credits go to Barry Katz. (laughs) (laughs) Why do they go to me? That's why I got most of them under Barry Katz, under you, a lot of them. You know, that's a a load of all those TV shows. Hey, man, we got an audition. I'm like, "Ah, I don't want to do it. I make excuses. Uh, Barry, you're, you're pretty good, man. I give you that. I've done a lot, but that that star search still haunts me. I wake up in a like I won sometime in a new outfit though. <laughs> yeah, that shirt you wore. You wore you wore like a Hawaiian shirt that looked like he stole it off Bob Denver and the skipper on Gilligan's Island. Now, they, I, Sinbad told me how to dress. Don't, Don't listen, listen to Sinbad. Sinbad. <laughs> he said because the audience will love you if they you're moving around, they see something, they got something to focus in on. I'm like, yeah, Sinbad, I'll do it. Yeah, let me listen to a guy who also lost to a white guy. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was good, man. That Star Search was good. Um, you know, we doing stuff, but Barry, Barry, you're a very big part of a lot of stuff. Thought process, though. It's a lot of thought process that you, people take with you. You know, like I said, with the jokes and the and the fact that you listened to the joke. You were in the clubs, Barry. You were in the club. You were in the clubs writing notes, giving notes. That never happens now. So, you 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 know, you're part of it. You're part of the, you know, how comics really, what really help comics. Yeah, I don't understand why people don't do that now. I still do a lot of that stuff. I don't go to the clubs as much. But I'll look at the links that people send me, and I'll make notes on them. I love doing that. It's one of my favorite things. I think it was great for for the younger comics coming up back, you know, when you guys were there. And we get mad sometimes. What do you want? But you gave the notes, at least. You were right there. You gave a whole bunch. And we're like, all right, if I put that right there, put the, okay, this will work. But you did give and help bring a lot of thought process to a lot of the comics. 
And a lot of times when you make notes, it's just channeling through me what I'm saying. I'm not the arbiter of what's happening. It's just my opinion after I hear it. It's just one person's opinion. Well, that just shows a creative process on both sides. It showed a creative process from the artist and the, the manager, which is great. It's a, you know, it's, it's a great thing for, for you know, that. I, I wish it was still more of it going on. But it was, I'm, I'm happy I got to enjoy that process because it was a good process. There were a lot of amazingly fun times. It was so great. You know, me and Wanda was roommates. You know that. Wanda was the kind of person who, when she walked into the club, again, I represented Wanda as well, she didn't have the smile on her face. There was something going on, and I never knew what was going on. She'd come into the club, and she'd give me a big hug, and she'd smile, and she'd share those things, and we'd be happy. But then afterwards, you know, you'd see her sitting somewhere or whatever and and being more serious. And then when she'd come in with her husband at the time, and I hugged her, she's like, don't hug me. You can't hug me in front of my husband. Don't hug me. I'm like, why not? She says, Barry, I I just don't want to get into it. You just can't hug me in front of him. And so you never know what's going on. And it's true. I'd like you to know that no matter what meeting you go into at work or whatever you do or wherever your workplace is, you never know what's going on with people unless they tell you. And so you have to sort of be like a chameleon and be able to navigate as best you can because... You're not going to ask somebody really personal questions like, you know, what's going on at home? Why can't right. this happen or whatever? You just don't want to do that. You just want to focus in on the craft of what they're doing. And Wanda was incredibly talented. But you also had other roommates, too. I've had roommates, yeah. Why don't you tell the audience the list of some of your roommates? <laughs> well, you know, Patrice he, Patrice O'Neill. Patrice O'Neill, the you late know, Patrice O'Neill. Yeah, uh, yeah. For, uh, Russell Peters came through. Russell line. Peters? Yeah, just a lot of people. I put bring folks in, you know. Keep going. Uh, well, I mean, uh, well, I I I brought, well, well, I just I just brought little Kev Kevin Hart to New York as my young fella. You know, I brought him up. I he's like my kid almost. So you know, I mean, you get these folks. Now you brought him in New York from where? I brought him to New York from Philly. That's right. And I stayed him at in your Philadelphia. Place. Yeah. So That's I right. seen him in Philly, and I brought him to New York, and uh, you know, called you, of course. He called me. <laughs> he called me uh, about Kevin Hart. And this is another story that's a great story is that, again, I am a kind of person who I just have my instincts, and my instincts sometimes do not fail me, and sometimes my instincts fail me. Right. And Kevin came into the club, and Kevin, again, like Keith, always happy, always right, funny, absolutely. always yapping, always doing whatever. <laughs> yeah, good yapper. Um, <laughs> but when he went on stage, he just wasn't the level of comedy that Keith was or the other comedians were. What he had going for him, he had the performance skills. He was an A-plus as far as a performer. Absolutely. But his material was not there yet. He just didn't have the material, and it wasn't going over as well. And his voice, the way his voice was, it came at a time when Chris Tucker was at the height of his popularity. So here this young comic comes in, and he's incredible performer, but he's got the voice like Chris Tucker, but he doesn't have the material. 
But he always said to me, Barry, manage me. I'm ready. I'm ready now. I can do this now. I'm ready. I can book acting jobs. I can do whatever. I'm ready. And I would always say, just be patient and you'll have everything you want. And he, he said to me, listen, I don't, I don't want to wait. I'm, I'm ready. And he went to L.A. and he booked his first acting job he went up for, I believe. Ordinarily, I say it was a process for an artist. But I'll tell you something. For Kevin Hart, at that time when he told me I'm ready to the point where he booked something, there was very little process. Right. <laughs> I mean, even though the pilots didn't go, which happens all the time. Everybody. Look, you know, Chappelle had seven pilots in eight years. It's common. But he was booking things, and he signed with a manager, and things just kept going and going and going, and I was wrong. And every time I go up to Kevin Hart, you know, I give him a hug, and I say, look, honestly, I truly am so proud of you, and I was wrong. You were ready. But I don't have any regrets. Right. You but can't. I watch him, and I see what he's doing, and I love what he's doing, and I love the career he's having. I love the fact that he's doing everything he wants to do. And, you know, sometimes as a comedian, it's nerve-wracking. In any profession, it probably is because you realize that your career as a comedian, based on history, if you look at the history of all stand-up comedians and their popularity from when they started till the end of their life, there are 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% that actually sustain a stand-up career that's monstrous. And every comedian in the back of their mind, when they get to that level when they're working in the arena, they know that this is not going to last forever. Right. It's impossible. You can't do it. It can't do it. Dice Clay was the one who lasted the longest. He did 12 years doing arenas, NBA arenas. That was the longest than anybody ever did. And when Dice works a place, of course he sells out the comedy club that's three or 400 seats and probably makes 100% of the door and maybe walks out with forty or 50000 or $100,000. But it's not $1.5 at Madison Square Garden. Right. And so that's why Kevin's doing so many different things because you think to yourself, okay, well, I have to be in a situation if I'm going to create these things, I got all these things going. Then if one goes a little south or things don't go the way I want them to, I still have these other things to go. And he's really working hard on all these other areas. A lot of people when Kevin Hart did the BET show, they're like, why is Kevin Hart doing the BET show? And I'll tell you why he's doing the BET show. I can guarantee you one hour at Madison Square Garden he probably makes more than two seasons, maybe three seasons on the BET show. And you know how many hours he works on that BET show? But some things you do for the respect and some things you do for the cash. When you do a Madison Square Garden show, you reach 19,000 people. And you make a splash, but you reach 19,000. Right. You spread your word to 19,000 people. On BET, he spreads the word to 19 million people, probably over the course of God knows how many seasons. Right. And that's why you do it. You remain relevant. You do something you have creative control over, and you make it happen. But, Keith, one thing should be noted is the fact that it's amazing that some people look at me as a manager who've seen a lot of talent and rallied around believing a lot of talent. 
but you're like one of the few artists that you see talent from the beginning and you bring yeah. them into New York. They stay at your place. Yeah. What is it about your eye? It's my eye, my sofa. I got a lucky sofa. I need to go <laughs> sleep on that sofa. <laughs> no, it's, you know what I mean? But you look at the guys. I got new young guys already just come to me. You know, from, yeah, people, I've gotten like, a, I've gotten like 100 emails. Hey, man, this is such and such. I got to have it. Why are you telling me you got to have it? Who you? No, I know you. I know you've been around. I know you helped. You're going to help me. And I'm, not, and I'm not taking no for an answer. <laughs> <laughs> How about beat it? No. <laughs> so, but, you know, you, you look at guys, you, you know, that you, you want to see them uh, move on to a next uh, another place. I think you should sleep on that couch for a year. I, exactly. I'm going to sleep I'll become my roommate. Is it still the same couch? <laughs> no, no, it's a different couch, right, baby. That's it. No, but uh, you know, I, you know, I've always been blessed. So you know, but you just get, you know, you still get blessed. Just be who you are going to be. You don't have to be, you know, so uptight and angry or whatever. You just be what you do, and your talent should show through no matter what. You should always have that. You know, you'll get what you need. No, but it was, you know, it was good to just keep, you know, you keep working. And you're blessed to be in this business so damn long, and you keep working. I remember, remember I brought you my $500 check that I won for, um, what was it, uh, the, the, the liquor company. Uh, Johnny Walker? Johnny Walker, yeah. A <laughs> big, giant check. I said, hey, Barry, put this up. You had Emmys. <laughs> you had Emmys in your office. Well, maybe an Oscar. I doubt it. <laughs> Some whatever, but you know, because Chappelle and that all, and I bring my Johnny Walker five hundred dollars check. Hey, put this one on your wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always had such a great relationship with you. It was really wonderful. I was, yeah, it was good. It was good. Though. That's when you know, because I wasn't, I wasn't making no money in Philly. Then I met Barry Katz, and I start making money. Everything changed. It was a big uh, game changer. I want to ask you about that, and I've never done this on this podcast. Because you know when you're an artist, you look in the mirror and you think you see what other people see, but you don't. Right. But it's the same with myself. Like, in those days, I never saw what other people saw. I never understood. Even to this day when you say that, it doesn't resonate with me. I can't figure out what it was that I was doing that made those things happen for you whereas they didn't happen before clarity it's like you 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 know what it is you made things a little clearer so you go oh that's what the business okay just because you know we're in montreal remember coming to montreal i never knew nothing about montreal and i think you know with the new faces that's one of your uh, uh puppies to bring that in and to have everything, you know, you all had all of us up here. You were one of the people when I brought all the 18 people up. Yeah. And that was incredible. And we were doing meetings all over town. All over, yes. And with you, and you stayed in my house on the floor, and Jay Moore walked and <laughs> threw you all out at 4 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Toss us out of the place. But, yeah, but that's the, and, but that's important in, in coming up. You can't forget that, where the clarity comes in at. So when, you know, me looking around, like trying to figure this business out, like, what the hell, how do I, because I'm coming from Philly, because when I first went to Philly to do comedy, I looked around, I thought everybody in Philly and an open mic was a celebrity. I didn't know no better. I'm like, wow, look at all these stars. Those guys, some of them may be homeless now or whatever, but there weren't no stars. But all of them did, because they were, they were doing something that I wanted to do, but I didn't realize there was another level 
to where you're supposed to be at. I guess I was doing bar business. You brought me to show business. Interesting. Okay. And that, you know, that, that, cause I, I absolutely didn't know nothing. All right. Let's go way back to Philly. You're growing up. Tell us what your family was like and what area you grew up in and what was your first inspiration to do stand up comedy? Oh, man. Like South Philadelphia, you know, like one block from the projects. That's what I would tell the girls. So they didn't say I wasn't in a project. So they didn't know I wasn't in a project. So I said I was one block from the project. Were you? Yes. But, you know, was same same dangers <laughs> it was no different were you good with the women back then i was all, i was like you know I, I was the pete rose of uh getting women charlie hustle so you're banned from pussy <laughs> i had to work real hard i had to work harder you know than other guys some guys coming there they had the pretty eyes the nice hair whatever i was you know charlie hustle i had to really work hard to get what i needed that sounds bad, but I had to, you know, I, I put I put in a lot of work. Tell us the story of the hardest work you put in to finally close the deal with a woman. Oh, to finally close the deal with a woman. Like, oh, what's man. the hardest you worked, the longest amount of time, dates and everything, and you finally made it happen? Oh, man, I went to Vegas with a girl, a girl named Pam, with my mom and all. We all in Vegas. And uh, throughout uh, Vegas, I'm damn near begging to do a little something and to get it going. And uh, we finally did it. And I was too punk Pete. And she just didn't want nothing to do with me for the rest of the trip in Vegas. Too punk Pete? You mean you were premature? Yes. And I'm like, and she wouldn't even speak to me. And I'm following her around like a puppy. You know, there's pills for that. I no, but I didn't know that was way, that was 80 something. And I, and I, you know, I was apologizing to her. And I was following around, and she went to the back of the bus and said, Miss Robinson, Miss Virginia, which was my mom's name, can you tell your son to leave me alone? And my mom just looked at me like, boy, you make my butt itch. <laughs> and, and it hurt me so much that I made my mom's butt itch because I don't know what that takes. <laughs> and that was her word. And anytime I do anything stupid, as far as women are concerned, I hear my mom, you make my butt itch. And it, and it just, that for some reason has resonated with me for 30 something, 40 years or whatever, because it's just like, oh, what are you following this girl around for, you moron? <laughs> I think if more people had a mom that butt itch when they did something stupid, they wouldn't stalk women. <laughs> okay, I got it. Well, it's, you know, it's what it was. So you're growing up project adjacent. Yes, I like that project adjacent, and uh, you know, just working, working where? Just uh, well, I, I worked at um, a Sheraton hotel. I was at a Sheraton hotel for I had I had all undocumented uh, jobs actually. So the Sheraton hotel, I'm stacking chairs. One time, you get on the back of a truck, you know, people come around a car, uh, <laughs> a truck will pull up, and they go, "Who wants to work?" <laughs> and you get on it. Mostly, you know, it was horrible work. So you're like one of those guys when you drive by Home Depot, they're outside. <laughs> yeah, waiting for. <laughs> so you drive by the Home Depot, okay? There's always people that appear like they're from another country. I don't know what country, if they're from Mexico, but they're always there with their backpacks out in front of a Home Depot. Presumably waiting for somebody to drive by like a John and a prostitute to say, <laughs> Hey, how much? Okay, come with me. Except they're hammering nails and putting things together. 
And every time I drive by these people, I realize something that blows me away. They all have something that the wealthiest people in the world have, and it's no different than theirs. And that's an iPhone. <laughs> Angelina Jolie and the guy from Mexico in front of Home Depot have the same phone that does the same thing. What else can you say that about? Well, nothing. Well, when I was gone, of course, it wasn't no iPhone. That's true. It was uh, nothing. You had nothing. Yeah, nothing. You had the was, beeper. The, the, yeah, I don't, I don't even think I had a beeper then. But it was just, you know, we just want to work. I was young. I was a teenager, but I just wanted to work somewhere. So I would go looking for jobs. And then I start, you know, looking at comedy. I knew I had this itch for comedy. But why? I don't know. It was something inside of me. I said, I want to do this damn comedy thing. No, but what influenced you? Uh, Richard Pryor. But Richard Pryor almost influenced me not to be in the business because he was so damn good. I'm like, ah, I can't be that funny. Then I seen comics on a HBO special. I'm like, oh, I can at least do that. I can, I can get some of those guys. Do you feel you have gotten to the level of Richard Pryor yet? No, no. Do but you, you just, you know, you keep to keep you in comedy. You got to keep trying. <laughs> so, do you feel you'll ever get to the level of Richard Pryor? I mean. Not really, because you don't want to, because Richard Pryor remains who he is. He's a, that dude. He's got he's got the best stories, the best angles on stuff. He's just he's an amazing dude. Now, I got, you know, sometimes he was blessed to have a horrible life, <laughs> so, so to speak. And, uh, you know, that's just what it is. Why don't you explain to the audience what you mean by being blessed with a horrible life? Well, as a comic, you know, the, 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 the stories come... You know, like I, I, I've had a lot of stories myself. You know, with, with life. You know, my mom used to. Uh, she shot a guy under the table, and we had to go to at a at a card game. He had what you call house parties, and so when you have something like that happen, it's still comedy gold. You know, your mom for whatever weird reason. You know, she shot a guy at a card game for cheating, and then the next day we're, in, we're going through the alleys of Philadelphia with big trash bags to move to Federalsburg, Maryland. So, you know, like, how you get a joke out of that? That's the easy thing to get a joke out of because my mom was, like, kind of a gangster in her own realm. You know, she walked around with a nice pistol in her purse, and, uh, you know, she took care of her kids. So it, was, it sounds rough to some folks, but it's great. When you live in that because you felt protected because you knew your mom. My mom would handle anything. Anything I needed, she would handle. All right, let's back up here. So where's your dad? He's uh, passed away. No, but back then. 70, what was it? And uh, like, Were they together, living together, or were they? Yeah, they were living together a while, but he, he's gone. No, I he know. He's gone early. Well, when did he leave the house? Leave, leave the house or life? Whatever it was. Growing up, was your mom and dad living in the same house with yes. you and your family? So there's you. What other children? My brother, my two brothers. Older or younger or what? They're all old. They're both older than me. Got it. Okay. I'm the baby of the family. Got it. So your dad just leaves the house. Do you know that he's leaving, or just one day you come home and he's gone? Well, my dad, he was, he was on. You know, Papa was a Rolling Stone. Temptations. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. <laughs> no, that's a song, Barry. Come on, man. No, my dad, his, his thing, he was a con man. That was my dad. He was Your a dad con was man. was a con man. Yeah, so he was out working. Tell us an example of one of his great cons that you know of. Well, I just, as a kid, just watching him work, I was amazed. You know, everybody else was talking about their dads. My dad's a cop. I'm like, my dad's a con man. <laughs> I thought that was a good thing. You know what I mean? And they were like, what does that mean? Well, 
My dad. That's what I'd explain it in school when they, when the teachers ask you to explain exactly what your parents did. <laughs> I was like, well, you know how uh, <laughs> you go in a store with a twenty to one dollar bill, and I look the teachers look at, and you come out with a hundred and eighty, two hundred dollars. That's what my dad does. <laughs> Tell us how he does the con and the cash register. Well, the con is like you know you go with a twenty to one dollar bill, have a twenty and a one, and then they call it putting the guy to sleep. So you can put a, a, the, the guy behind the counter, and whoever's behind the counter, you can put them to sleep just by, give me this, and you keep switching stuff off. Give me change for that. Give me change for this. Break that for me. Give that back. And by the time the guy is registering everything in his mind, he's asleep. And my dad has like a $200 and it's, and it's over. Who yeah. taught him how to do that? I don't know. I would like to know. Did uh, you ever do a con? No, we used to cheat with the cards. He taught us how to mark cards and put the crip in the deck and you know, you know you have to do. You have to learn, Barry. Does he to, carry a gun? Yes. So you grew up. Your dad carried a gun. Your mom carried a gun. Yeah, my mom was a beautician, but she was rough. She was just a rough woman who didn't play when it came to our kids. That's why you know I tell everybody when you you know women have to they shouldn't have to be as strong as they have to be. Sometimes my mom had to be stronger than she had to be, but she did it. That's what makes women amazing to me. When's the first time you held a gun? How old were you? <laughs> well, probably about eight, nine. It's a little 22. It's like pellet guns. We just shoot me. My brothers were shooting at the door, at somebody's door. When's the first time you held a real gun? Uh Oh. I was about 17, 18. Got it. So you never reached into one of their bags and held the gun when you were a kid. No, no, never did that, no. Why? But it wasn't available. You didn't. I guess they put it away pretty good. It wasn't available for us to just get. So your dad divorces your mom or just leaves? Or he what? just was, he, well, he ended up passing away. He passed away when he was living in the house with you guys? Yeah, er, er, yes, at an earlier situation. How yeah. old were you when he died? How was I? I was like eight, nine. Eight or nine. Yeah. Tell me about that day. The day that my dad died? Tell me what was happening with you and what you remember. We were on the steps. My grandmother walked up like, your dad's gone. She never liked him. So it's like, he's out of here. And so we're like, huh? That's how you That's how you break the news, Grandma? <laughs> but she didn't like him that much. And she said, yeah, your dad is gone. Then she went on and had a soda, a nice soda pot, root beer, I think it was. And, uh, you know, we was like, oh, damn. But you know, um, how did he die? How did he die? Well, he was he was murdered. Actually, he was uh, uh, knife stabbed. And did they ever find the person who did it? Oh yeah, we found him. <laughs> yeah, he he ended up uh, getting shot mistakenly on purpose by somebody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was you know an eye for an eye. Yeah, it was one of those things. Absolutely. That's incredible, Keith. You're growing up in this world that not a lot of comedians grow up in. I don't think right. Jerry Seinfeld was growing <laughs> up. <laughs> the, Project the, adjacent. Project adjacent. So you know. you're involved. You know your dad's been murdered. Right. You grow up at a very early age. You're eight or nine. You know your mom is the kind of person who's going to figure out what happened and how it happened. Right. And you know that in some way... 
whether it be a short percentage or a large percentage, she's involved in figuring out how to take out the guy who killed yeah, the Yeah, something that goes, yeah. Every, but my, the, the family, when you live in a certain situation or whatever, like a lot of, I had a lot of family members that did a lot of things on the crooked side. So is this, this guy's percentage of walking the streets wasn't that good. So just so our audience understands, because I'm not from that world, if somebody kills somebody, mm-hmm. don't they know they're going to be killed? Not really. Some, you know, people do. I don't know. Sometimes people do stuff out of anger, out of whatever dumb reason people do stuff. They do it, and you know, then the repercussions are the repercussions. You know, like back in the day, if you, you know, I was watching was it the John Gotti story, and it, somebody had uh, just hit his kid with a car. He didn't, I'm sure he didn't mean to. And John Gotti was like, from what I was reading, that he didn't, you know, that he was like, hey, he didn't mean it. And his wife was so hurt. And then the, the guy ended up disappearing. They don't know who did it, <laughs> but he just disappeared through, you know. So, you know, it, it, it's just according who you attach to. Well, they, you know, they always say that, like, you said something earlier. I'm paraphrasing this fortunate enough to have pain in this life. Yeah. Well, you always can tell with a comedian there's always that incident that happens where they lose their innocence. Right. So that moment on the porch, that was the first moment where you lost your innocence. Oh, absolutely. You know, but that's, you know, but we, we even, you know, where it's like when you, with your family, you have, uh, like, that's why my mom, I love my mom so much. Like, you know, because she just protected us the best way she knew how. Now, you said she's at a card game, and she shoots a man under the table. Now, yeah. under the table, when you shoot somebody, there's a few different places. That <laughs> we don't know. You know, that's now you could have shot him in the stomach and whatever, but she shot so, the dude. But then she then. has to leave the place where there's other people who know that she shot the person. There's people at the card game. Right. So there's at least... Three other people with her and that guy at that card game, plus people probably hanging around. Yeah, hanging around. She shoots a person at the card game. Right. She probably takes some money and gets up and walks out the door. How soon before you're in trash bags with your clothes leaving the house? Well, in the morning, it's like early in the morning, like four or five in the morning. We on a uh, was trailways back then, I think it was. But you have couches and beds and. No, no, no. We had that. <laughs> you get to close and go. Have you ever been on a run, Barry? <laughs> no. You don't get a full moving operation. <laughs> you waiting for after you shoot somebody. Now you have a TV, I'm assuming, right? <laughs> Come on, Barry. How white are you? <laughs> <laughs> you don't call a moving company? <laughs> ah, Barry. But you have your most valuable possessions, your dressers, your mattress, your TV. Think about you shooting somebody, but just think about you. You're not calling Jimmy's moving company. You're going to get what you can and run. (laughs) You watch crime shows at least, don't you, Barry? Jesus Christ, Barry. So why did you go to Maryland? We had family there. So you went and you just stayed in somebody's stayed house? Stayed there for like six months. A place on a woman named Twiddles. 
Country, right? Country Road. And what, she had one bedroom or something? No, she had a big, horrible, it was a giant house with snakes in it. And it was just horrible. The house was horrible. We had fun. And so we. Was we, it a good neighborhood in Maryland? Yeah. Was it great? It was just not, but, you know, land, a lot of land. And, and then your mom got another job. Yeah, she just got a job, and uh, and we did that. And and like we want us being in Merlin from the city, we go to and, you know in that place. It was so nice to hit just had the, the bikes, laying in the lawn, and we're from the city. We're like, look at these free bikes. <laughs> it wasn't our bike, but they just laying there. We're like, oh, free bikes. So we must have stole at least forty two bikes. <laughs> <laughs> and he had to, you know, and you sold what, the bike. We just had the bikes. We'd just get them, ride them, and, you know, we just had a whole bike thing, and we'd lay them in uh, the cornfields, just lay them down, and they had a big art. That was a big article in the Federalsburg Gazette, I guess. Bike bandits strike again. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we, we, we were in there for, like, at least maybe a year. So you were a came thief. back to Philly. I think, no, no, don't say it like that. I was a kid. I was innocent. <laughs> no. But the bikes was there. Right. We're from the city, uh, okay. Barry. All right, let's do a little six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name or somebody, and you tell me something, a story, something that comes to mind about that person. Is that okay? okay? Yeah, that's story. All right, Wanda Sykes. Wanda Sykes, my best buddy, my best friend. I love her to death. Awesome. You know, we, we, we remained friends for 26, 27 years, still solid as ever. And that's rare. To be right on the same, she's just amazing. Louis C.K. Love him. Funny as hell, creative. Uh, he's going to be the next dude with the films and all that, like in a Woody Allen sense. He has his own twist on everything. But, you know, Louis is an amazing dude. Chris Rock. Not, well, you mentioned all the amazing guys. Chris is a, a genius. Chris is a genius, man. He's constantly figuring out what what's next. And where, where does it fit in at and how to, the angles? His thing is angles. Chris has amazing angles on every situation. You know, that's what makes him better than most most of the folks. Dave Attell. Dave Attell is another. Jesus Christ, Dave is an amazing guy, but he's more rapid fire. But his jokes are just well-written, unbelievable. And, you know, he's another amazing dude. Hey, these are, they're all amazing comics. Colin Quinn. That's my favorite. Out of everybody, Colin's my favorite. I love Colin because Colin has what I call a full game. You know, he brings everything to the, like if it was basketball, he brings everything, how to lay up, a jump shot. I mean, he can't dunk for real. <laughs> <laughs> but Colin has so many different things to talk about. Colin can get into the pain of his life, the political, the social, every angle that, that you can talk about. Colin does everything, you know. Jay Moore. Jay Moore. I love Jay. Jay Jay's a rough rider. <laughs> Jay's like a, a rapper. You know, like uh Marky Mark Marky Mark and a funky bunch. He just has that vibe about him. But Jay it hangs in there and he's just funny. You know, Jay, I find Jay very funny and honestly Jay say whatever. <laughs> he's crazy. He's a wild card. Jay is a is a is a wild card. Jim Brewer. Jim Brewer. Always loved Jim. Jim Brewer. You know, with you. You know, of course, met Jim with you. Uh, Jim. Uh, Jim has always been funny as hell. 
What is me and Jim laugh? I've never laughed with anybody as much as I've laughed personally with uh, Jim Brewer. I mean, we in tears laughing. So that that for the one of the most amazing laughs through life, it was Jim Brewer. Amy Schumer. Amy Schumer, love her. She's she she's got such an upside to her. That's the great thing about Amy is that she's not even halfway finished. She's like her up her arc is so big because I'm watching her grow. I'm watching how she's grown and her continual uh, maturation. When she's she's gonna be a beast if she keeps the work on, comedically. And her acting is Jesus Christ. She was phenomenal in her movie. She was just like Jesus. Her acting is so good. I'm like wow. And 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 to see her write a movie. And I was watching when she was writing the movie and putting it together. And to see it come out like that. And to see it come and to see how what the finished product was. That is a very focused, hard-working woman. Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart, that's my young fella. You know, that's my young fella. That's a young kid that I picked out, picked him and Jay uh, Okerson out, Big Jay, and um, brought him to New York, and I've been through a lot. With he, I put a lot of energy into stupid, those two dummies. And it was so, so bad to where we had, he had a birthday, when he had a birthday, and we, they got him drunk, and I drove him home, and I didn't know. He had peed in my seat. <laughs> and at this time, my son was two, three years old, came running and put his face right in the pee. And if his mother would have knew that that wet spot in the chair was Kevin's piss, she would have <laughs> she'd have beat me and Kev after death. <laughs> Judd Apatow. A genius. You know, this guy's, uh, you know, anybody's a humble genius. Well, you want you don't look at Judd and go, he's a genius. You know what I mean? You look at Judd and go, eh, who's this guy? Who this? And but you then you see the work that he puts in, how he does stuff, and it's amazing. Judd, he, yeah, he's an amazing dude. The late Patrice O'Neill. That was my man. You know that that Patrice was so many different things for me. He's almost like my little brother, almost to be honest with you. And uh, to just watch him grow. And we just we we connected on a different level, other than just comedy, and I and I got to see Patrice. A lot of people thought Patrice was this mean dude that just busted chops. He's one of the sweetest dudes I know. You know, like when my mom passed away, he must he called me so much. I'm like, enough, man, stop calling me. So I see Patrice as a, as a guy who was he was headed. I think he's a genius. You know, I think Patrice was closer to Richard Pryor and, and Chappelle and all those guys. He was, you know, his thing was 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 that because he 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 had a lot to give, a lot. Tell us one great story about Patrice O'Neill that our audience wouldn't know. Uh, well, the, the the funniest story for me that still makes me laugh. Is I mean, of course, there's a lot, but it's a Montreal. Let's relate this to Montreal. Okay. They said, we, you know, he was in Montreal, and a comic, John Priest, had his headshots, his 8 by 10 John Priest was a former boxer. Yeah. He <laughs> was a wiry kind of guy who had this way about him that he was so funny, but he was kind of like a guy who you felt like got a little too many blows to the head. <laughs> but he had a wonderful energy. Right, absolutely. Brilliant energy. Good, he had a good energy. That's what makes his story funnier. So John Priest had his brilliant energy, had his head shots in his hand. This is around all the, you know, the agents and managers. Everybody's there looking at Patrice like, oh, let me see those head shots. <laughs> and dumb, 
Dumb John Priest handed him the headshots, and Patrice shredded him right in front of his face. <laughs> John Priest was so hurt. <laughs> he always had tears in his eyes. He wanted to punch him. He didn't know what to do. <laughs> but he had all his headshots and bios neatly ready to pass out, I guess. And Patrice, let me see that. <laughs> and then threw him over his shoulder. Oh my God! <laughs> wow, that made me happy. <laughs> <laughs> oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> and just tell us one more story about Patrice that might be, you know, more of a side of him that people don't know. That people don't know. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I, the fact that he called you every day. I remember when you said that, and it's sort of again. I know this sounds odd, but I, I, I'm. You can see me. I'm actually tearing up a little bit, getting emotional <laughs> because I think about a moment in the Magic Johnson Larry Bird documentary where Magic talks about how Larry just hated him. He couldn't compete and be friends with anybody. So Magic was always happy-go-lucky like you, but Bird always had the game face on, and Magic would try to shake his hand, and Bird would never shake his hand. <laughs> Everywhere they went, never talked to him. And then they did a McDonald's commercial, and they wanted to shoot in L.A., and Larry said, I'm not shooting in L.A. If you want me, you shoot it in my backyard at my basketball court in French Lick, Indiana. Right. And again, they're doing the commercial. He's not giving Magic anything, no love, nothing. And there's a lunch break, and Magic's walking away, and all of a sudden he hears Larry say, where are you going? And Magic's like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lunch. No, you're not. You're coming to my house. My mom made some lunch for you. Come on. <laughs> and that was the first time he ever gave anything. And he thought, okay, well, this is great. Now we'll go back to the court. We'll be friends. Nothing. <laughs> but the main thing I wanted to say was when Magic Johnson found out he had AIDS, the first call he got at his house, he picks it up. It's Larry Bird. Whatever you want, pal, whatever it is, I'll do what anything you want. I'll go there. I'll do anything for you you need. And I remember that documentary seeing Magic crying saying, you really know who your friends are when the chips are down. Right. Absolutely. And you found out who you're. Yeah, Patrice was 100%. You know, we. I love Patrice. I know he loved me. And, you know, we go through our times we didn't speak. We didn't speak for a, a minute. And he called me up, you know, I was like, hey, I know uh, I have a, I'm having a cookout. I'm like, ah, fuck your cookout. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard from you. Beat it. You know, he's like, come on, man. I'm like, ah, beat it. I'm not coming to your cookout. So another year passes by and he calls me again. Hey, look, look, I know I haven't called you the way I should, but please, man, you, you got to come to this cookout. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, all right, I'll do it. <laughs> but, but you know he was just a, a good dude that's what my major thing with patrice a lot of people are like he's an asshole he did this he did no he was a very very good dude a, 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 and a kind heart and a, a lovingness about him that you can feel you know for you know i i you, know, you people look at the hard exterior or whatever they felt was the hard exterior but i just thought that he had so much in him that was just a, a downright good person one of the greatest feelings in the world to anybody listening 
is there's those people that you're not talking to in your life that you just don't want to talk to or you have this riff with and it's been so long you can't even remember if it's something you did or something they right. did but you're just not talking to them the greatest thing in the world that'll make you feel like a million bucks is when you see them from across the room you know they see you but you don't really do anything just walk right up to them and hug them and tell them you love them and you miss them right and it's the greatest feeling but in the it's world. the greatest feeling because when you you know i've always told you look i love you to death but you're bugging me now <laughs> you know <laughs> but it's no different than my brother's <laughs> you know, by actual, you know, we, you know, we get on each other's nerves. My brother Dow had, had, he was the master of annoying me. If you have a brother, you would know that he, my brother was the war. I annoy people. I know how to do what my brother was, my, that guy that annoyed me. He would have a, a bowl of cereal. We're sitting in the living room, our kitchen eating or whatever it was, and he'd get right in my air with the cereal and just going to slop it up like, yum, 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 yum. I'm like, Mom, huh? She says, he's not touching you. But he's saying, yum, yum, yum. <laughs> <laughs> but he knew how to get to me. You know what I mean? And But we still, you know, we go through our periods where we don't speak. It was the same as Patrice. I could annoy the, the hell out of Patrice. But we knew where we stood at with each other, so it, it never mattered. And, you know. To know that you where you stand with a person is more important than that. He know I loved him, and I know he loved me. So we, you know, we go at it, you know, and and uh, we we had uh, we went to the, you know, we did a lot together. Me and Patrice did a lot a lot together, you know. So he he was good. And you saw him, of course, before he passed away. Yeah, we had a big cookout. As a matter of fact, we had a big dinner in L.A. Me, him, and Ian Edwards had a nice dinner in L.A. Ian Edwards is an incredibly yeah. talented comedian, writer, a great voice in comedy. Right. So we had that. And, you know, we just was. And he called me up. Matter of fact, he called me up. He said, hi, what are they saying at the barbershop about my. Because that's what it is. When you when you do something good, you want to know what the barbershop is talking, how they feel about it. The black barbershop. Yeah. Yeah, of course. No, the white one, Barry. I go. <laughs> I go. <laughs> <laughs> if the barber shot somebody, would he take his barber chair with him? <laughs> now, would he take the barber stuff with him? No, um, just the razors. <laughs> somebody get my barber stuff. I still have to cut. So there's a regular barber shop that you guys go to in L.A. No, the, when I Barry, how oh, Jesus Barry? No, in every barber shop around, you want when I say barber shop, I'm talking about generalization, the big, you know, the bigger picture. When black barber shops around the world have your bootleg DVD on there, <laughs> on that TV, it's good. It's almost having being barbershop approved is almost. I think it's better than having an Oscar or a Emmy or any of that. It's just the, the, the people love you. You know, I remember being in Los Angeles, coming back from the clubs at like two o'clock in the morning with Chappelle to the Le Dufay Hotel, and. I said, are you all set for your set tomorrow? He was doing some kind of set on television. He's like, oh, man, what time do I have to get there? Oh, this one's an early one. You got to get there at like 1130. Oh, man, we got to go to a barber shop right now, Barry. I'm like, Dave, it's it's 2 o'clock in the morning. There's no hair cutting place. Yes, there are, Barry. (laughs) I'm like, Dave, what hair place is open at 2 o'clock in the morning? Black barbershops, Barry. You can always find them. 
<laughs> and we drove down the Melrose and we found a black barber shop that was open like two thirty in the morning. That's amazing. Yeah, there's just a lot. I got my first. I got it. My first L.A. haircut at a barber shop, and I'm. I'm it was so funny. The barber had one guy in his chair and he's cutting the guy, but he was getting frustrated with the guy because he's like, "Yo, you have too much grease in your hair, man. I'm not cutting your hair no more. Get out of here." And he threw the guy out, and the guy's like. I'm going to come back here. I'm going to smoke your ass. And he ran out the door. And the barber like, ah, he's full of crap. Come on. You want your cut? I'm like, I'm not getting He just said he's going to come back and shoot you. You think I'm going to get a shape up now? I'm in the line of fire. <laughs> Uh, that was my L.A. experience. <laughs> Did you get the haircut? No, I got out of there. You think I'm going to sit in there and get a nice, comfortable cut? Did you take anything of your possessions no, with you? or you just, just leave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Barry. Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle. This guy, I think, is like, you know, I said project adjacent, prior adjacent. I can call Chappelle prior adjacent. He just has it all. He's just, This dude is so funny that, you, you know, I remember Barkley said something about Jordan. He's like, uh, finally had to get to the to the point where I said, he's just better than me. That's Chappelle. <laughs> you go, because uh, you know, you, you're like, I'll get him. Don't worry. I can, uh, he's better. He's better than most of He's just better. Chappelle is just better, and he does it with such ease. You know what I mean? He's just, he, he's that dude. I saw him the other night, and I hope he doesn't get mad at me for saying this. But I spent a lot of time with him and about an hour, and it was beautiful. But he just goes on stage, and it just tremendous to me. He says, listen, uh, I'm up here. Um, you know, I got my money. And uh, you look at this show as sort of like uh, Evil Knievel. You know, I'm, I'm going to make an attempt. And, uh, you know, if it works, it works. If it fails, it fails. But I still got got my money <laughs> i just something about that, that. It just made, and the crowd's going crazy and i'm sure like a half of them don't even know who evil can evil is right right but they just love the joke anyway your proudest moment in show business my proudest you know what the i, I went the best time i had my um what my proudest moment in show business going back to the projects and performing i i we want me uh Will Sylvans, I think it was Ian, Rich Voss. We all want that. I had them all go to the project. And Donnell Rollins. And Will Sylvans and Donnell Rollins and Rich Voss, all very talented yes. comedians. And I had, we went to the projects, Tasker Projects, where project adjacent to where I used to live, and we performed in a community center. That was my proudest moment. Everybody was just like there. The whole neighborhood was packed. Like Keith is back, and you know it was it was a good thing. Wow, your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to get to the next level. My biggest disappointment was my sweet booing at Showtime at the Apollo. Oh, that still hurts. I'm. I think I'm gonna cry. Can I get it? No, <laughs> I was there that night. Well, you didn't want to, oh my God, everybody was there. Now, this was one of the funniest booings in the history of television because yeah. something happened. Didn't the host come back out over and over well, again? Sinbad was the host. That son of a bitch who told me how to dress for a star search. <laughs> but 
This was the now, first time you'd done it? No, the first time I did it you killed. was, I was with there that Mariah time. Carey. That's right. Mariah Carey, boom. I'm, that was, she was just starting out, and I, it was great. I was, I was feeling myself, and then they're like, hey, we want Keith to come do it again. I remember that. And, and I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. They want me back. You train for the Apollo. You don't just go back to the Apollo. You got to go like a boxer, run, punch through water. You don't just go right back. Now, will you tell our audience, because a lot of them don't understand the way the audience of the Apollo is. So we explain. It's a rough audience. That's all you need to know. The Showtime at the Apollo audience is a rough audience. It's like just, a, you know, it up, up like up top, the very top, it's a lot of people right from the just the dregs. They're the, they're the hoodest of the hood. And uh, I don't know if they know understand that. Uh, they're just rough riders. They real, you know. They 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 come to boo. They take uh, what's that stuff for your throat to help clear your throat up so you can uh, chlorets, just so that boo won't be impeded. They like a nice boo, and they want their throat cleared so they can boo <clears throat> boo. So they. <laughs> so what you're saying is they're not from the project adjacent area. They're from the project. They're from the <laughs> those project. guys. Oh, those guys are absolutely from the. They're project. from Midtown Project. <laughs> yeah. <they're>... <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So, but, you know, with Mariah Carey, I guess she had a, you know, nice, sweet voice and da-da-da. So I'm like, yeah, and it was a better audience. And, you know, my mom was in the audience, too, so maybe that helped. Because my mom was looking at people like, you better not boo my son. <laughs> she <laughs> so, had the gun underneath her I seat. Think, yeah. <laughs> there was no metal detector. Listen, I'm sure. baby, let's take a paper bag and the microphone. Let's get out of here. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, I finished with Mariah Carey's show, boom. So maybe three weeks, uh, a month later, I'm on again. And this time I'm on with Chubb Rock. Now, Chubb Rock sang the song Treat Him Right. It was one of the hottest songs back then. You know, it was 1990, Chubb Rock. And the place is just bumping and jumping. And I, and, 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 and as soon as I get off, Sinbad didn't give me no time. The floor is still jumping when he introduces me. So he's like, ladies and gentlemen, Put your hands together from Philadelphia. Keith. Now, in the audience is LL Cool J, Mike Tyson, Heavy D. Every black important person is in that damn audience. So I'm like, all right, I'm ready to go. And I go out there and Flex Alexander, and I already keep saying he was already Fuquan said he wasn't involved, but they they like they said from Philadelphia, they're like, fuck Philly. Who said fuck Philly? Flex Alexander. He was in the crowd? Yeah, he was in the crowd. Now, Flex, so you don't know, he's a comedian, an actor, and been around a long time. Yeah. And he's actually a guy who I always thought of as a nice, kind, genteel kind of guy. (laughs) The fact that he yelled out fuck Philly (laughs) shocks me. (laughs) Well, it was 1990. So, uh, 91, whatever it was. So, (laughs) I go on and now I'm already rattled. And I tell a joke and it didn't go. You know, you have to, you, you've been on stage. You know, once you, a joke don't go, you, you dry up. Your lips just dry up. I, I, they got stuck together for some reason. And I'm like, hmm, I couldn't, I couldn't. And then this, this old woman, I call her Grandma, Grandma uh, Apollo, that's right there ready to boo you. And she start going, Aah! and I'm like, oh, no, I'm starting to panic. And all I hear I think you told me this, or somebody told me, if you if it goes wrong, goes south, just uh, sabotage it, curse, spit, pee on the floor, whatever you do, don't let them air it. And I'm like, but I'm so arrogant and angry 
So I'm like, nah. I normally say that after if, and this is a very unique philosophy of mine, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but normally 90 seconds in, if it's not going well, if you're a comic and you're doing one of these shows, it's better to sabotage it at that point. If you've already done it and done well before, they have a record of you doing well, and this way they won't air it if you do something like that, if you don't give them enough time, or you just say, thank you, good night, and you get off at like 90 seconds, they won't air it. And then you'll get another shot at it. But normally comedians have the mindset, I can make this work, I can win. And that's what you had. That's what I said. I'm, I'm not, y'all ain't getting me out of here, no. And Sinbad came out with boxing gloves, gave me a massage. No, but wait a second. Sinbad, this is what, it was the most amazing booing ever. And tell me <laughs> if I'm remembering this correctly. So about two minutes in, he's getting booed. Sinbad walks out. He stands next to Keith, and he says to the crowd, which people never do, please, this guy killed on the show before. He's funny. Just give him a shot. Let's have a round of applause for Keith Robinson. Keith starts again, does the routine, gets booed again. Sinbad comes out again two minutes later, starts massaging his back and saying, come on, everybody, this guy is funny. Trust me, he's really funny. Another minute and a half, two minutes, booing. Sinbad comes out with boxing gloves. <laughs> and the boxing gloves. <laughs> and then he tried again. It was Nothing. over. But it was the funniest booing ever. It was the one time a comedian got booed on the Apollo where I really felt it was the most positive <laughs> set for a guy who got booed ever. And even Mike Tyson was laughing. Those people were laughing because it was just a funny thing. They knew well, you they were, were laughing at my pain. <laughs> but they knew you were funny. Right. They just knew it wasn't going well that It way. wasn't going well at all. But the thing about it Did you it see is, them afterwards? Yeah, I seen everybody. What did Mike Tyson everybody. say to you? They just, you just looking, hey, man. <laughs> but Mike was crazy Mike then. He had a little Z in his head. Oh, he's crazy. normal Mike now. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And um, so... Glad you know, your I, mom didn't shoot him on the same <laughs> So with the, with the Apollo, you know, I thought I did enough for him not to show it. And uh, six months passed by, and I'm in, in Baltimore, never forget it, and um, with a girl, and my cousin Phil calls, ah, laughing on a phone, on a, on a hotel phone. I mean, a hard laugh. Ah, ah, turn the Apollo on right now. You're being booed. And the girl heard it. She's like, what? Turn it on. I'm like, oh, no, I don't know. She, no, she turns it on, and I'm being booed. And... <laughs> I'm getting a good one, and this bitch left me after seeing me get booed. At <laughs> She's like, "Oh, I got, I'm, I got a headache." Something. She came over with a headache. She, she got her stuff and left. <laughs> wow, you didn't even get the two pumps in. No, I didn't get the two pumps. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! You know, but God. I honestly feel that that said. Even though she left you, I thought that that was a positive set, and I thought that actually, believe it or not, I thought that helped your career. Well, it, it, you know what? It helped me. It helped me <laughs> not to do the Apollo unless you're completely prepared, and it helped me in the fact that, uh, you know, it, it, it's just like you got you get over it, and that's when, like, maybe it was maybe it should, I forget I'm forgetting the years, but I know I, when I went to the to Star Search, which was a great experience. You know, I loved Star Search. And, you know, just have, you just keep getting up. You keep moving. 
That's the that's the, the biggest lesson. Because when that when the Apollo shows in the neighborhood, everybody in the neighborhood was watched it. You know, so being project adjacent and everybody looking, yo, Keith, what happened? And <laughs> you see what happened. <laughs> I got booed. <laughs> the hell you mean what happened? And you know, so you, you you just keep it moving. Now you've seen so many people in this business mm -hmm. go on to do great stand up and film and television and specials and executive produce things. What advice do you have for the young comedian who's coming up in the business or anybody coming up in the business to have a long and phenomenally great career like the careers of the people that you've seen around you, including your own? All right, you gotta keep keep it moving. Keep writing. Don't believe the hype. Keep growing. You know, the, the, well, we talked years ago. You're like, hey, I'm like, if I came in sad from something, you're like, hey, buddy, it's a marathon. <laughs> Not a 100-yard dash. Not a 100-yard dash. So that's what it is. This is a marathon, and it's great. Enjoy the process. That's my biggest thing for me that I've always enjoyed the process. And I, I got to laugh. That's what I started out doing from, from, from uh, elementary on up. I've always laughed, bust chops, have fun. I'm having fun. So people see me smiling like, oh, you still, yeah, I'm still smiling. Why not? You see me not smiling, it's over. <laughs> That's how you know it's over. So I think all these young guys coming up, enjoy the process. Don't get caught up in your hype because it goes up and down. And, and, you know, it can get steady for a while, but we know how it is. There's some bad times going to come. So enjoy your process. Enjoy this. Being in Montreal, that was a great day. You get me, you get me to Montreal was that was special, you know. So yeah, enjoy that damn process. All of them out and out, your new faces. That's who you are. But you, those new faces are going to turn to old faces, <laughs> and still enjoy it the same way because it's still good. I still enjoy Montreal. How long ago was that? Twenty-one years. Twenty-one years ago, and I'm still enjoying Montreal with my man Barry Katz. That's what you do. Enjoy it. All right, Keith. I've really, really enjoyed this. This has been amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming by. Thanks. I man. really appreciate it. <laughs> I hope you had fun. Absolutely, man. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, it lands on John Keenan from Collingdale, Pennsylvania. Don't exactly know where that is, but John, for purchasing I Killed JFK, the documentary. You just won an invitation to attend a live podcast here in L.A. and be a part of it. And if you can't be here, we'll Skype you in or FaceTime you in, and you'll be able to meet my guests, ask them a few questions, 
And so thank you very much and congratulations. All right, this has been another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, please, please, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, please, please, please tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.